Welcome to the How Writers Write podcast, a show focused on inspiring and empowering you to become a better writer. Come along as we deconstruct the tips, routines, and motivations of your favorite authors. In the end, it's all about getting your story onto the page. Welcome to episode 15, How Whitney Terrell Writes. I first heard Whitney speak during a lecture from my MFA. I remember being absolutely captivated by the amount of practical, meaty information that Whitney shared with the class. My pen was catching fire as I tried to keep up. This episode with Whitney follows that exact same trajectory. Whitney shares so many usable ideas from how to write from the perspective of the other, a common topic we've talked a lot about, and it's timely right now in the market, to tips on pacing and story structure. I hope you enjoy listening to this episode as much as I enjoyed speaking with Whitney. I could have gone on and on and on with him. So I made three errors in my intro of Whitney. Even though I do a healthy amount of research on all of my guests, I managed to not pronounce Whitney's last name right in his intro. It is not Terrell, as I said it, but Terrell. Correcting that now and for the record. Also, Whitney is the co-host of the Fiction Nonfiction podcast with the novelist Vivi Ganeshanathan, not the host. Last, Whitney is an associate professor, not an assistant professor. Please forgive me the errors, and I hope I have corrected the record for all time. Also, before we get started, this episode is sponsored by, again, me. How Writers Write is a platform to help writers tell their story. And one way I do that is through one-on-one coaching. I help writers move from where they are to where they want to be. And that can mean getting started on a writing project, conquering their self-doubt, or building the discipline to see their story come to life. This is interesting. I invite you to schedule a free 45-minute introductory call with me. You'll be able to determine both if coaching is right for you, if it's something you want to do, and if I'm the coach you want to work with. If you're interested, visit www.howwriterswrite.com slash coaching to read more and schedule a time with me. Okay, without any further ado, here is the episode with Whitney Terrell. Welcome to the How Writers Write podcast. I'm your host, Brian, and today I'm excited to welcome Whitney Terrell to the show. Whitney's latest novel, The Good Lieutenant, was selected as a best book of 2016 by The Washington Post, The Boston Globe, and Refinery29. It was long listed for the Andrew Carnegie Medal for Excellence in Fiction. Whitney is also the author of The Huntsman and The King of Kings County, and the upcoming novel, The Crossroads, which I'm very excited to read. Whitney is an assistant professor of English at the University of Missouri in Kansas City, where he teaches creative writing. He has also taught fiction at Princeton University. Whitney earned his MFA from the Iowa Writers Workshop. Maybe you have heard of it. His nonfiction has appeared in the New York Times, Harper's Magazine, The New Republic, Literary Hub, and many other publications. Whitney was also an embedded reporter in Iraq during the 2006 and 2010 and covered the war for the Washington Post magazine, Slate, and NPR. 
He was born and raised in Kansas City. Last, Whitney is, the, is also the co-host of the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast by Literary Hub, which is one of my favorite book podcasts out there. Seriously, if you like books and you like listening to people talk about books and writers talk about books, it is absolutely wonderful. Check it out and subscribe. Whitney, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me on. That's very nice. I'm glad you listened to the podcast. I, uh, and I enjoy yours as well. It's <laughs> nice to be in the literary podcast world together. Some cross-pollination. So before we get started, what's going on in Kansas City? Are you a Chiefs fan? Is this like the best week of your life? I Well, first of all, I am more of a Royals fan than a Chiefs fan. So when the Royals won the World Series in 2015, that was more, uh, this may be heretical to say right now, but that was more important to me because I'd been a season ticket holder since like the 90s. Okay. And they had sucked so bad for so long. But this was fun. We went to the parade. I followed the team. Patrick Mahomes is this kind of amazing player. Andy Reid's a likable coach. Everybody's happy. Yeah, it seems like nobody's upset that the Chiefs won the, the <laughs> Super Bowl. You know, like, like it's not like the Patriots where there's like half the country, not even 80% of the country hates that they win every year. Well, the Chiefs will be the bad guys if they continue to win. That will be, the, you know, because the Patriots were a feel-good story when they first won, so. Yeah, you get one darling year and then you become the villain, right? We're in it. So I want to boil up some big points here. As I was doing research on you, I was like, oh man. So you teach creative writing, you write books, you co-host a podcast, which is a lot of work to run a podcast. Yeah. I read online that you have a family. Like, help, help me understand, like, what magic are you using to manage your life and be able to pull all those things off and especially write in the midst of all of that? I mean, that's a good question. And, you know, the podcast really has changed my life. We started that in the fall of 2017. So we're in our third season. And figuring out how to do writing and do that podcast and teach at the same time and then also, you know, be a dad and a husband is, I don't really know how we're doing it. I do a lot of work at night, to be honest, especially the podcast stuff. I've discovered that like, I can do that, you know, after the kids go to bed, I sound edit, I write scripts, I do what I need to do from between like eight and 11, you know, so I work, I do most of my grading and my podcasting stuff at night. And I write, try to make time to write every day from like nine to one, basically. Okay. So walk walk me through that process. It's nine o'clock and you're getting ready to write, like, what is, where are you at? What does your day look like? Well, I have an office in my house, uh, which is like a, a for, used to be like a side porch to the house that is now enclosed. So you can shut, you know, it's, it's pretty long. It's the length of the house. It's big and, and you can shut all the doors to it and it has lots of light. I have a big desk there that I've had for my whole writing career. And you know, I, I usually get there about 8.15 after I drop my son off, at, one of my sons off at school, and then I fart around on the internet for a while and answer email. And then I start getting to work around around 9, you know, and if I can work in t- th- those three hours, I used to work longer, but I found that it's less productive for me to work till 3 or 4, so I just try to work from 9 to 1. Yeah, and I think a lot of people, at least, you know, people I engage with that are part of the How Ready to Write platform. You're screwing big... me up, by the way, by having me on the podcast right now. I had to take oh, no. off early. Okay, I'm sorry to... If I seem grouchy, that's why. Screw, to, to screw up your, your creative <laughs> flow. <laughs> One of the things I talk about a lot and I talk with people a lot is how to manage a full-time life and write in the, in the midst of that. Yeah. And how challenging it can be to switch from roles. So switch from the writing role to then, you know, your work role to 
parenting role or you know spouse role, whatever it might be. Do you find yourself having trouble falling into writing in the morning or do you just, you're able to just sit down and start cranking? If I start jacking around with the email too much, I can lose a day. You know, like, so if I, I have to be really careful if I remember like, oh crap, I was supposed to open discussion threads for my English 316 course. And then I'm like, yeah, I'll do that now. If I start doing that and it gets past my starting time, then that can be a problem. And I, you know, I did that today. The thing is like, if you screw up a day, you can, you know, there's always the next day. I mean, I'm there every day and I do do it seven days a week. So even on the weekends, my kids know that I'm going to be in there working during that period of time. So you are not taking a break unless a podcast comes, comes knocking. Yeah. I mean, and I, I worked this morning. I just, I wanted to type this scene in that I had finished and I didn't quite have time, but yeah. But every day, yeah, every day, every day. Maybe, you know, for the last, how long is like 94 ago? Yeah. However many years ago that is. 26 years? Yeah, every day for that amount of time. Wow. Walk me through, like, when did you start writing? What was the first time that you started to say, like, I want to tell stories? I mean, I wanted to be a writer when I was in, in high school. And uh, I had these very influential English teachers who were teaching me like John Ashbery and were having us read Ulysses and William Faulkner very early. And I liked them. And one of them was also my soccer coach and I was a big soccer player. And so I admired them. And in their view, it seemed to me like the best thing you could possibly be would be to be a writer. And I loved reading. And so anyway, I started writing then. That was really never a wavering. I always, I wanted to do it all the way through college. I did it all through college. And then I went to grad school. Do you remember your first story? Yeah, I totally remember my first story. It was a story about, I have these very wealthy relatives by marriage were ended up being the source of the, of the Bowen family in the King of Kings County. So they were a big Kansas City real estate family. And uh, I wrote a story about a dinner that I'd had with them where the daughter of the sort of patriarch of the family and he was married to my aunt, but it was his second marriage. So he had kids from a first marriage and his wife was dead. And one of his daughters came to the dinner and passed out with her face down in her food while we were eating. And nobody did anything. Like she was just lay, she was just there, like face down in her food, as I remember it. And everyone just kept talking as though this were totally normal. And it was so unsettling and weird for me. And so I ended up trying to write a story about that. Which so, so that was a true story. That, what, yeah. what you were saying was that was, was, an, was the actual true story. No, no, that happened. Oh, uh, okay, okay, okay. And I wanted to write a story about it. I gave it to one of, not one of my favorite teachers, but a guy who had said that he would read my fiction. I'd asked him. And, he, and then like two months later, I asked him if he'd read it yet. And he was like, no, I lost it. And I was like, what? <laughs> you know, I just, and he's like, oh, it's better for the both, both of us. And I was like, okay, that was my introduction to literary criticism. But he was wrong because that story and the, the pressure of weirdness that I felt in that family, in the end, became that novel, The King of Kings County. And in the end, the weirdness that was in that room had to do with you know, sins committed by that family in the terms of the sense that they were a family that had segregated the city through the use of racial covenants and the building of their real estate empire had been built on racial discrimination. And that was another thing that was not talked about. And so that dinner was a, 
example of how a family learns to not talk about things and where not talking about uncomfortable or damaging or terrible information becomes the norm. And so that was a useful story for me. Yeah. About how old were you when you wrote that? 16. Okay. And so how do you manage? It's a really interesting topic. How do you manage writing about the people that are close to you in some sort of critical way without completely burning down their relationships (laughs) and causing crazy family strife? Because it sounds, you know, and I read the book and I remember when I first heard your lecture at NYU, this book came up as well. And, you know, writing about somebody who's close to you like that, it would seem like, you know, people are gonna be like, hey, you know, I saw myself in this character. What's what's going on with that? Well, that that definitely did happen when that book was published. And, you know, that family, the famous, the only reason I'm not using names is because of that, because of the woman. I felt bad. I feel bad for her in that particular version of the story. But the Nichols family is that family that they're a famous real estate family in Kansas City. And they, and they had, they, it's, you know, it's historically known that they used racial covenants or it became historically known after I published the King of Kings County, because that was one of the first books to ever talk about that in Kansas City. And there have been subsequently been others and there was another. So it's been the increasing amount of literature on that family. I didn't care. I mean, I I knew that family fairly well, but they were not my immediate family. Mm -hmm. And also, except for my aunt who was married to the patriarch. And and I did go and talk to her about it and say, look, I'm going to do this. And our relationship is still pretty good. I mean, she didn't deny that it happened. And she's also very good <laughs> at pretending things don't happen, as we <laughs> could tell from that dinner, right? So yeah, it can sometimes work in your favor. But it was surprising to me, actually, because I knew a lot of the, of the younger kids from that family. I'd gone to high school with some of them, and I'm good friends with them now, and I, we're still on social media together. And they were complimentary of the book. It wasn't part of their legacy. They hadn't made those choices, and they were felt much more comfortable talking about it and sort of getting it out there rather than having to pretend that it didn't happen. And I think there's a certain amount, there's a certain level by which people, if you're telling the truth in the end, it's a relief to them to finally have it be told. How do you, especially now, extremely politically charged times, on, you know, regardless of what your political persuasion is? Uh-huh. How did you manage writing Kings of Kings County? You know, there's a political understory to the book, certainly. Yeah. It's incredibly character-driven, and there's lots that's happening in the book. It's not, it's not like there's, you know, you're talking just structures of political theory. How did you bake in political relevance with, like, character development and character movement? And how, how do you weave that together so that, like, as a reader, it's an engaging story, but you're still presenting a political opinion or, you know, political view within the book. Yeah, that's nice. Of, I mean, that's nice of you to ask. And I appreciate you paying attention to that because it's not easy to do. And I am remain very proud of that book when I look back at its structure. And it wasn't easy to achieve. I mean, I wrote a whole 600 page draft of that book that was uh, told from the point of view of Jack Atchison, who's the main character, but it was told from his point of view when he's 50 years old. And he's looking back on all the events of his life. And it was terrible and it was boring. And it was about him like going to visit people and interview them, which is what I was doing to research the book. So that was how I wrote it. 
And then my mom was like, you know, you should maybe start when the story starts. And I was like, oh, that's good advice. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, mom. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, I here are some things that I think help with political writing. And this was true also when I was writing The Good Lieutenant, which is also a political book in certain ways about the war. You have to be angry about something. You generally, if you want to write a political novel, you're angry. You think something has happened that is unjust and, and crazy. Hmm. However, and that, that anger will drive you through the pain of writing the book. That's helpful if you feel like it's a really important issue and worth talking about. However, that anger is not very good as fiction. So I have always had to find characters who embody a principle that is exactly the opposite of what I think to argue for the other side of the equation in a way that I find at least intellectually interesting and not dishonest. Not like a caricature of the opposite political opinion. Yeah, you just can't, I mean, you can't have your, your, the bad guy in your book be a mustache twirling you know, villain who's like, chaining a damsel to the train tracks and that's not going to work. And so there has to be a dialectic happening in the book where there's an actual ethical debate between characters and your ethic has to be challenged by someone else's. I mean, when I say your ethic, I mean you, the author who's coming into this novel with an opinion. It is horrific. The use of these racial covenants and the way the city was divided. And this was a devilish act an example of true evil, and, and I, I can't stand it. You can't write a book from entirely that point of view. It will be boring and polemical. Mm-hmm. So I had to invent a character, Alton Atchison, who is the father of Jack Atchison, and who has a, an opinion that is like, why are you getting your panties in a bunch about this? Because this is how American capitalism is. This is how it works. This is how it always has worked. And if you're upset by it, then you're lying to yourself about the system that you're living in. And here are my examples. Tom Durant, you know, the Ford, you know, the Ford company, Ford Motors, every single, you know, great real estate entrepreneur, every single billionaire in the country's history has been a crook. And I just want to be like them. (laughs) And, And I'm just, at least I'm being honest about it. And so I had originally conceived of him as a character who would lie to his son about what he was doing which is what most wasps do when they're doing illegal business deals. But he, I discovered like to make him live as a character, what I discovered would be interesting about him is what if he was totally unapologetic about what he did? What if he said, this is the system that we live in. And what if he got other, like a a black real estate agent to work with him to do this exact thing, right? And enriched that man in that way and made and, and caused him to be on his side, right? And what if he was actually personally gregarious and much more interesting and flamboyant than the narrator who holds my moralistic view? Then he starts to balance out the equation and become more complicated, and then it starts to feel like a novel. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like as you're writing that character who is opposite from the, I think you use the term, the moralistic core of your narrator. Yeah. Do you find that that character, that is the, I'm not going to say antagonist, but we'll just make it easy, we'll say that. Does that character embody a part of you as well? Like, do you see yourself in that character as well, even if it's a sliver of it? Or is this coming purely from, you know, what's an interesting person? I think you have to find a way to like that character. Hmm. I mean, I'm not like Alton Atchison, but there were things about him that I liked. 
And I've always been attracted to and been friends with flamboyant, gregarious people. And so I enjoyed writing about him as angry as the things that he was doing made me. I also appreciated, let's go back to that story that I told at the very beginning about the dinner table where the woman fell face first in a dinner and everyone ignored it, that she was having a drug problem or maybe she was drunk or something was wrong with her. Alton Atchison would never ignore that. He would say, what are you doing? Sit up. This person needs help. You guys are crazy. He would speak up and, and say all of the secrets. And for me, when I was a kid growing up in a upper middle class Kansas City society in a hugely segregated city that was lying to itself about why it was segregated, I wanted, I wished there had been someone like that around me. And so in that sense, I could identify and enjoy that character. Yeah. Part of the book too is writing. And I talked to a, when the podcast first started, I talked to a fair amount of authors about this. It's just really timely and relevant in the news, kind of faded and now it's coming back. But the idea of writing about the other and writing from outside of a perspective that is your own experience, that is your own. And King of Kings County, you, half the book is from different ethnicities than you. And you have quite a bit of, you know, you're just, you're just writing from a very different point of view. Well, I mean, now that book is narrated by Jack Atchison, who's very similar to me and goes to the same high school that I do, that I went to, uh, you know, a, a fictional version of my high school. The, the Huntsman, I do write from the point of view of African-American characters. Okay. Uh, I must have my, yeah, narrators mixed up. Yeah. yeah. So that's a third person omniscient book that does have, that does have black characters in it. And Booker Short is the hero of that, uh, one of the main characters of that book, who is a young black kid who grows up in, in, in Oklahoma and then comes to Kansas City to find this guy who had fought with his grandfather. In yeah. World War. So I, again, another, you know, it seems like a, Another novel has um, political undertones to it, but this time with the layered complexity of writing from the other. Yeah. What was that process like for you? Like, how did you, you know, I'm going to, I'm doing like, get that right in air quotes. Um, that's, <laughs> that, that, that's been the narrative that we've heard a lot in the past couple of weeks as far as like, you know, writing from the other is if you're going to do it, make sure you get it right. What was your process like for that? Well, I mean, you're talking, we're right, we're speaking in the sort of wake of the American dirt controversy, right? right. Is that what you're yeah, referring to? Correct. Yeah. Yeah. And I read a lot about that. And I, you know, this is one of the things, I'm going to write an essay about this someday. But, you know, there are a lot of authors who do this, like Zadie Smith does a good job of it, for instance. However, it's unfortunate that the controversies are always seem to be, well, maybe it makes sense that they would be around someone who's didn't do a good job, <laughs> you know? Right. Like, you know, because there is this opposite, there's this opposite philosophy that I, you know, look back, trace back to, and I've said this many times, I'll just say it again, because it's important to me, you know, to Ralph Ellison and his essay, The Black Mask of Humanity, which is from his essay collection, Shadow and Act. And then by extension, James Allen McPherson, who I studied with at Iowa, and also, Tony Morrison has written essays about this, and more recently, uh, Jess Rao. All of them are writers who have talked about the necessity of, for white writers to encounter and deal with the subject of race in their writing. And that if you are not doing that and you're writing about an entirely white world, you're, you're not telling the story of America. So there's an imperative that comes from great African-American writers and other white writers to, to and writers of multiple ethnicities to do this. And then there's also the other side, which is like, 
it's a, there's a critique and white writers are doing a, shouldn't be engaging in that. And so that's, there's a tension always between that and American literature. I fall on the side that it's an imperative subject for any writer. Without it, my work really wouldn't exist. And I wouldn't understand the city that I live in if I wasn't able to see it through the viewpoints of characters who are not the same as me. To understand Kansas City, you cannot simply understand it through a white perspective. And so, you know, that book came out of the Huntsman we're talking about. I think you have to find your way. If you're going to write from another perspective, it has to be something that you're not looking to do, something that you don't want to do, but something that the structure of your novel finally requires and the subject matter requires you to do. And there's no other way to get around it. Yeah. I bring it up because there was so much noise from American Dirt that I believe, I deeply believe in the redemptive power of storytelling, both on like people who hear stories, but then the storyteller, like so much, so much of, of you, you change as you write something from a different perspective and you learn things that you would have maybe never had exposure to. And you see perspectives that maybe you never would have seen before when you take on a more diverse kind of writing narrative. Right. And so, you know, I'm highlighting and bringing it up, hoping that as we talk through it, seeing that like American Dirt didn't get pulled off and had a lot of criticism. And I think in my opinion, you know, justified criticism that it still doesn't like tamper the idea that literature can and writing can and should help people connect with other perspectives that they wouldn't have of normally, you know, I don't want to say looked into, but explored as in depth as you do when you write. I always end up feeling encouraged by the discussion over issues like this because you have writers who behave extremely badly, in my view, <laughs> like Lionel Shriver. This, you know, we can go back to that speech she gave at the Australian Book Fair when she was wearing a sombrero and declaiming that she should be able to write whatever she wants. That is a terrible way to have this discussion, right? And what you keep having is writers of color who are who are engaged in this process of imagining and writing come back and say yes you know of course you can do that why but why are you you know why are you wearing that sombrero and can you please stop being such an asshole you know <laughs> but just write you know and and we're going to judge you on whether or not you can write well and i'm like that in the end it always ends up coming back to that and i think i'm totally fine with that there was a really good essay in slate recently by a journalist whose name I totally know, and I'm because I'm 52 and spacing on. So I thought there was a really good article on this uh, by the journalist uh, Leon Krause in Slate talking about it. You know, like he was saying, like, look, I don't have a problem with this a white woman writing this narrative. We need more narratives like this, but it's not a good narrative, and here's why. I mean, I think that's great. You know, yeah. I think that's what it it should it should be. And in my case, in the Huntsman. I had had a, a friend of my grandfather's who was a white guy who'd been a captain of a company of black troops during Second World War. And I used to hunt with him all the time when I was a kid. And he would always tell this story about these soldiers that he had fought with and commanded because in the war, they wouldn't allow black soldiers to be officers. So they would put white officers in charge of the black troops, right? But I also knew that this guy was telling these stories about these guys in a way that was white. And he was understanding them in a way that was white, that was for, and I liked this guy, but that was like 
turning them into caricatures in a way when he would tell those stories over around a hunting fire while we're duck hunting in Missouri. And I thought that the story of those soldiers and what it felt like for them to have him as a captain was a part of that story that needed to be told if I was going to tell that story. And so there was no way to write about that issue. And it was an issue that was unique to me. I'm like the only person who knows that story other than the soldiers that he fought with. And I felt like I had to figure out if I was going to write about it, which I wanted to, and which I thought it was a meaningful story that I was going to have to tell both sides of that story. And there just wasn't any way to tell it without having the perspective of the soldiers voiced. When you're coming up with the concept for a book and you're starting to take shape, the book's starting to take shape in, in your heart or your brain, wherever it does. What's the emotion that like fuels you getting into a new work? Is it curiosity? You said anger earlier. <laughs> like, What is the emotional core that drives the reason why you pick out of the zillion options that you could have you know, going in this direction for this book? I would say that there usually is like an issue, weirdly enough, I want to talk about that I feel like will make people uncomfortable and that I feel like people aren't talking about. I want to be in that space where I'm talking about something that everyone knows is true, but they they don't want to talk about. And so if I can get to that area, then I feel like I'm in new ground and I feel challenged and I feel frightened and anxious about it but I also don't feel bored or like I'm wasting my time. Yeah, it makes me even that much more excited for the crossroads. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, the setup works for me. Good. So how, how then, we talked about this a little bit when we talked about like the political understory, but how are you managing then and what's the tools that you use to make sure you're moving a story along and you're developing characters, but you're also able to give attention to that topic or issue that you want to explore? Well, now you've arrived at the thing that I do the worst, (laughs) (laughs) right? This is where I always fuck up. (laughs) And this is why I don't write books in a year, but instead I write them in four years or eight years. I find plotting very, very difficult. I am not naturally good at it. I have to start I've developed some like thought experiments that are helpful to get my plotting started. I am totally incapable of outlining. It doesn't work for me. And so I have to just write scenes and see if those scenes are good and then see if they lead to plot somehow. What are those thought exercises? Well, I developed this idea when I was writing um, The Good Lieutenant because the Huntsman and the King of Kings County came together sort of intuitively and I found my way to the kind of conflicts that we're talking about. But I did it intuitively without like consciously knowing what I was doing. But the good lieutenant wasn't working and I was really stuck on it. And I had to develop this idea that I use in class all the time of ethical conflict. Like, do your main characters have an ethical conflict? What, what are their ethics? How are their ethics different? And so those ethics are usually expressive of the debate that I'm having in the book, oh, political of some sort. But it gets brought down to the molecular level. Like, does this person like to be in groups or is this person an individualist? What kind of music does a person who likes to be in groups listen to as opposed to an individualist? You know, the individualist maybe listens to ACDC and the the person who likes to be in groups listens to Sly and the Family Stone. I mean, to use dated musical references, right? 
you know, so you, you sort of break down the political idea that you're working, you devolve it into character traits. And then you start to write these characters from that perspective. And the thing that they're arguing over is that ethical conflict that they have at heart. And so hopefully eventually that turns into plot. Oh, that's super interesting. I want to repeat that because I've not heard that broken down in that way, which is you're taking a broad concept of like, you know, some problem you're seeing in society or in politics, whatever it might be, and chunking that down until there's a conflict the character directly experiences. And that is one of the ways by which you can explore that political conflict is through the character's individual conflict. Yeah. Like in The Good Lieutenant, I have a main character named Emma Fowler and her boyfriend, Dixon Pulowski, and they have a relationship throughout the book. But Dixon is an opponent of the Iraq war and not a believer in the army. And he's a coward. And he doesn't believe that it's good to, you know, sacrifice yourself for others. And Emma believes exactly the opposite. She's fairly, she kind of really likes the army and she's not really into individual action. She likes the community of it. And she does believe in sacrificing herself for others. And so they have this ethical, but, you know, opposites attract. So it makes sense that they would have a relationship, but their relationship ends up being an expression of a debate over the war too. Okay. I love that. Like, I, I feel like that's what that is such a clear expression of how to deal with those big political societal problems in the narrative without it being like preachy, like I'm banging you over the head yeah. with this political point, which we, you know, when you're reading a book like that, you're immediately like, okay, okay. Like I get the author has a bias here that you're trying to convince me of because it's not coming through from the characters. Yeah. If you're translating this political debate into a personal debate over like how to have Thanksgiving dinner, you know, Mm-hmm. right? Then that's where you get into territory that feels more like fiction. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. So as a professor teaching the next crop of great American writers, have you seen like some, you know, best bang for your buck improvements that your students make in their writing? Like there, are there things that they can do that like immediately make them stronger writers? Oh, I would say I need to start I used to teach this a lot more and I've noticed that I stopped working on it as much. And it's, and I've noticed that it, I've had to go back and reteach this to students is pacing, understanding that there's only a certain amount of time that you have the reader's attention for. And so that if you write a scene that should be three pages, but it's five pages, that scene is bad. But if you can just make the scene three pages, then suddenly it's good. And that one of the ways to separate yourself from failed writing or writing that doesn't succeed in attracting an agent or getting bought is compression and sort of relentless ability to shorten your scenes, to not overestimate how interested the reader is in what you're saying. And to sort of George Saunders, we were interviewing him for the Fiction Nonfiction podcast, my co-host Sugi Ganeshanathan and I, and he talked about it was, actually it wasn't during our interview. It was during an address he gave at a book fair that we were at where we later interviewed him. And he was talking about this little meter that he keeps in his head of like the reader's attention. And at the minute that he feels that meter beginning to fall, he like says, he stops what he's doing and says, all right, what's the problem here? And I feel like if I can, if students can learn to read their material fresh and see when that meter starts to fall off and cut until they make it work. That is the number one thing. 
Yeah. So if there's a listener out there who's hearing you and they say, okay, that's amazing. And maybe I identify with that. I realize my pacing is for whatever reason it's off. What are some steps? Like what, what can somebody do like right away to improve their pacing? Like what are some tools in the toolbox? What are some books that they could read or essays, lectures? Where would you start if you had no idea how to improve your pacing? I'm not a big, uh, I'm not a good person to ask for how-to books because I don't read them and I never have. So I don't really know. <laughs> okay. I just learned this stuff by doing it. But I would say this, I would remember one particular maxim that is that I go with, over with my students all the time. And that is, do not explain stuff until it needs to be explained. I think that emerging writers often think, I have to explain everything about this character so you will understand why they're going to shoot their dog. And so when you get to them shooting the dog, you're like, oh, I know everything about their backstory and their parents. It tells me why they shot the dog. And what you need to do instead is have the character shoot the fucking dog. And then the reader's like, why did they shoot the dog? And you're like, okay, now I'll tell you why they shot the dog. Yeah. Emerging writers are doing it in the wrong, giving information in the wrong order. I love that. I I had like a second where I went through everything I'm working on, trying to think, <laughs> where am I giving information in the wrong order? Well, this happens, and this is because of the dialectic and workshop. And I was just talking to a student who I really love, who is really good. And three years ago, she wrote an amazing opening to a novel that she's still working on. And the novel's going fine. But she kept revising that opening. And it got worse. And it got worse. And it went from being 50 pages long to being 85 pages long. And finally, I said, look, can you just please come over? We're going to go over this and fix what's going on here. And so I I went back to the original draft of this that I had kept. And I said, you know, I'd written on the comment, don't change this, just go forward. And I said, why did you keep revising this? Why is it 35 pages longer? Why are we not getting to these things in a more timely fashion like you were the first time? She said, well, everyone in workshop kept saying to me, well, I don't understand this. And I, I need to know why why is she doing this? And why are these things happening? And, and so I felt like I was doing something wrong because they had all these questions that I wanted to explain to them. And I say, you want the reader to have those questions. That is called narrative tension. Yeah. So the students in workshop who are demanding that you ask these things are simply telling you that you've done a good job and you'll get to it. Yeah. Do they trust the writer, the, the author? to deliver that answer. And if so, they'll keep reading. But the fact that they have the question means that they are concerned about the character and want to read forward. Right. So you want them to ask that question. You don't have to answer it until later. Oh man, I love it. This, that gives me like tinglys as we talk about it. What, are there any, any other big improvements that you see students make pacing being a big one? When you and I, Matt, I was, I was talking, I gave a lecture on structure. And I do mm-hmm. think that whereas I'm a fan of sort of bifurcated attitude towards structure, I'm a fan of, of complicated structures. And I'm thinking the good lieutenant goes backward in time and using time in interesting ways. I do think that you need to really question your use of flashback. Flashback is a dangerous crutch if more interesting things are happening in the flashback of your work than in the now, which is the main storyline, right? Then you've probably set your story at the wrong time. Mm. Like for instance, like when I told you about the King of Kings County that I wrote it originally when my main character was 50 instead of starting it when he's seven as the real novel does start. 
and everything that was important was happening in the first draft was happening in the past. It was because I was afraid to write that stuff in the now. Mm-hmm. But the reader wants things written in the now because the now is by that, I mean the main timeline where we don't know what's happening in the future yet. A flashback, we already know it's over. It's happened. The now has within it the pressure of the uncreated moment. So the reader, readers read fiction for the, for that moment. Like I'm in a scene with these characters and they are arguing and I don't know what's going to happen. Yeah. How are they going to resolve this? Right. That's what they're there for. And flashback never has that because we already know it's been resolved because it's flashback. So staying out of flashback, trying to make sure that your now is the strongest part of your story is another thing that I think can really help. Yeah, I love it. Okay, so to round out the podcast, I have used to ask three questions and I've added a fourth. And so let's ask those four questions. And to begin with, if you had to pick a spirit book. So this is a book like your spirit animal, only in book form. Which book would that be? I went and got it off the shelf. Okay. I have it here. This is Ralph Ellison's collection of essays, Going to the Territory, which I sort of, in my mind, is, is sort of connected and paired with his other essay collection, Shadow and Act. But I think about those essays almost every day that I'm working if there's an ethical conflict, you know, I, I, I am often pessimistic about America, <laughs> as many, many of us are right now. And I, I forget or I'm critical of what the American experiment could be, that it could ever be anything worth anything at all. And Ellison is someone who came from circumstances that were obviously much less privileged than myself at a time when you know he was really an outsider to the american culture and yet he has not a pollyanna view of american culture but an interesting and intelligent take on what it means to be a writer in america and i just find his words his the way he thinks to be always heartening and useful i'm going to have to i'm a big ellison fan but i've not read that so i'm going to hop over to my bookstore like as soon as we're done here. Okay. Question number two, is there a specific tool, a pencil, software, chair? We we had somebody say pajamas, Um, anything (laughs) at all that you absolutely must have in order to write? Yeah, I have a very big, really sturdy, mechanical royal typewriter that belonged to a great uncle of mine who was blind and who wrote poetry. And I grew up at a time when people learned to type still, like in seventh grade, we all had typing class. In high school, people were just getting Apple computers for the first time, but we were still typing our papers up. So I, I really, really, and I, it's not an affect. I think it helps me. I type all of my first drafts on a, on a typewriter. Like a mechanical typewriter. Yeah, like a mechanical typewriter. Yeah. I mean, I could use an electric if I could. They're just, it's just, why do you need the, you don't need the, Yeah. they're harder to get ribbon for, basically. What's, what's the draw for you? in using a mechanical typewriter? Writing fiction, and I only do it for fiction. I write all my journalism on a computer. Writing fiction involves daydreaming and visualization. And there's not a screen in front of your eyes when you're working on a typewriter. This, the, the, the words are below you, so you can stare straight ahead out the window and visualize what you're doing. You can't go back and edit 
And I think that's important on first drafts. And I'm not tempted then to go back and as a procrastination exercise, rewrite the paragraph I just wrote because I can't do that. Yeah. And there's no internet. And there's no internet. <laughs> there's no Twitter. There's no, there's no alerts. <laughs> yeah. I love it. It reminds me, Amy Harmon, who was on the show, had a keyboard that has like a little screen in it. It's almost like a modern day version of a typewriter. And so it's yeah. like a computer keyboard that has like a three inch by five inch screen. And it's just words. You just type and it's just words. Yeah. Huh. Um, kind of reminds me of that. Okay. How do you deal? This is question number three, by the way. How do you deal with the constant ups and downs and chaos that is the writing life? I mean, I haven't always dealt with it very well. Like I had, and I talked about this before, but, you know, writing the, the Good Lieutenant, I had a lot of problems with panic attacks. I had, it was the first time I thought I really had had serious anxiety issues around writing and fear that I wasn't going to get the book done and that I would lose my career and that I wasn't going to make it. I just have to be something else. I mean, for that, I went to therapy and took, you know, drugs, you know, and that helped. <laughs> but I do, I think the best bulwark against that is having friends who are in the writing business who, when you're having a problem, you can call and say, I, I am really frightened of this. And, and they will say, well, this happened to me and I did this. And, you know, I think the key is having a community of other people who have done this yeah. and who can, you can be open with. Yeah. Somebody to share the burden in a way. Yeah. I mean, I wrote, I remember talking to Margot Livesey, who was my, one of my teachers at Iowa. And she, when I was having real problems and she talked about a book of hers, Eva Moves the Furniture, which she had been working on when I first met her in Iowa and had taken her 10 years to write. And she said, you didn't know it, but I was totally freaking out about that book when I was teaching you class. And I was like, oh, really? Okay. Well, I didn't know that. <laughs> you know, that made me feel better. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So last, last question. If you could go back in time and give your 16-year-old self, as you just start writing, one piece of advice about the writing life, what would that be? I was going to say like work every day, but that seems too obvious. I, this is, I think this is a Midwestern specific advice because I'm not sure that this is always true of students in New York who I think are closer to the literary industry and thus don't view it as mystical. But I would say to that kid, as I say to my students all the time, believe that you are not just good enough, but deserve to get published. Do not get intimidated by the fact that the industry you're trying to break into is so far away from you and you don't know anyone in it and you think you have no chance of ever breaking it through. That's how I felt for a long time. And it was a scariness that... I felt like I have to write the most perfect book ever to even have a chance of anyone paying attention to me. And I think that that when I got into the publishing industry, I realized like, oh, well, that's not true. <laughs> <laughs> Here's a ton of people that aren't writing perfect books that were getting published all the time. Right. You right. know? Yeah. Um, and so I just feel like don't be intimidated. That's what I would say. Man, listeners out there, take that one to heart and let that sink down. I mean, it's such a powerful piece of advice to not be intimidated, like tell your story. Yeah. Whitney, thank you so much for your time. I so appreciate it. I feel like I have like a million gems from this conversation. You filled me up. Thanks for having me. It's great to talk to you and stay in touch. Okay. I will. Thank you so much.
Thank you so much to Whitney for his time. If you haven't yet, please take a moment and subscribe and rate and review this podcast. It means so much to me, and I love seeing the feedback and comments on it. It helps me get better. It helps me share the word, helps other people know that this is a podcast they want to listen to. Also, connect with me on Instagram at How Writers Write. Also, I'm on Facebook, How Writers Write, and Twitter, which is How underscore Writers. Really, I spend most of my time on Instagram, though, so if you want the most content, that's where to go. If you want more information, feel free to visit the website, www.howwriterswrite.com. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you have a wonderful week of writing.